You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 24th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. And a very good morning to you. It's Emma Nelson here broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, I'm joined in the studio by Charles Hecker and Chris Phillips to look at the global papers. Chuck, good morning. What's caught your eye? Good morning, Emma. Today, of course, is the second anniversary of the start of the full invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And the New York Times, the Times of London and The Guardian all take very different perspectives on this very grim anniversary. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll hear more about Chris's new book, Battleground. 10 conflicts that explain the new Middle East and ask if it's possible to have clarity in such a dense and fraught political and military space. Plus the latest from the art world. That's all coming up on Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson. And a very good morning to you. A very lively half hour of quite a heavy political bent. Uh, well, geopolitical bent this morning, uh, because I'm delighted to say that joining me in the studio is Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks, currently on leave to write a book about Russian business, uh, and a new voice in the Midori House studio, Chris Phillips, Professor of International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. Welcome both. Um, Chris, you are uh, here ostensibly to talk about your new book, but we've decided that uh, we're going to make you work for the whole half hour, if that's all right. Uh, Chuck, you are nearly finishing your book. So before we get to the news of the day, when you first met in the kitchen a moment ago, you were both talking about what it's like to write a book and how you're feeling. And you're five weeks off, Chuck. How how are you doing? Um, I'm feeling a bit nervous, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, And I find the process at times an enormous pleasure. I find it frustrating. I find it stressful. And I find it enjoyable. It has become, strangely, my comfort zone. This is what I do every day. And the, the manuscript is due in five weeks. And I've begun to think, what do I do when it's finished? And I'm not quite sure to be candid with you. Chris, what do you do when it's finished? Uh, take a break, have a small holiday, relax a little bit, um, but then worry about everything that you've written changing uh, because of uh, geopolitical events that develop after the script has gone to the publishers. Now, the reason why this is very, very relevant to you guys is that uh, you're, you've written a book about the Middle East and 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 10 areas of of problems which we all need explaining. We'll come to your book a little bit later on. And you're writing about Russian business. <laughs> <laughs> Not that anything's changing Charles. there, yeah. Um, I, I mean, what are you doing? Because in the sort of like the final sprint finish that you're going to be doing in the next few weeks, how do you mitigate for the fact that by the time that the ink has dried on the print, this may not be quite as relevant as it as it was when you wrote it? That's right. Something is bound to change. Um, just at the time that you close your laptop or put your pen down. And you do this um, in a couple of ways, and that is that you admit it. You say, things may change, uh, number one. Uh, Number two, you try to take a very long-term perspective. And you say, over the course of events and as geopolitics develops, this is what we might anticipate in the future. And you try just to sort of future-proof the book a little bit by admitting that things will change, but then explaining how they might play out later. So when did you finish your book? Because your book is about the Middle East. Well, I finished the initial draft. Uh, in autumn last year, and then the Gaza war exploded. Uh, so I had to rewrite several sections, the conclusion, the uh, the chapter on Palestine. Um, but as Charles says, you, you 
mitigate against some of those issues by saying this is a long view assessment things will change. Uh, but at the time of writing, this is what I feel is an accurate assessment of what's going on. And then do you suddenly start making notes for the next book? Or do, or, or do you actually say, actually, I have to walk away now? Uh, a little bit of both. I think you go through both processes. I, I initially wrote a book on the Syria conflict. It went through three different editions each time I updated it. Uh, but from 2020 onwards, when the conflict kind of died down i decided to walk away and say okay no more new editions let's this uh, is the homework that never ends <laughs> it is the gift that keeps on giving i suppose you know if, if i am lucky enough that there are three editions of my book i would be only too delighted to revise and update each one um that would be a very good problem to have and do you have a thing that you have to do every single day in order to write because one of the one of the more interesting parts of writing is the process that we never get to see we just get to see the words i mean do you have a thing that you must do like spin around three times and touch your nose before you can write or have a good cup of coffee or something. The one thing that I must do before starting writing is spend as much time as possible in bed. Um, and, right. then, <laughs> and then it's lots and well. lots and lots of coffee. And um, and then, yeah, I kind of sit down and you do the sort of, you know, crack your knuckles, stretch your fingers and get busy. Bed for you? Or what was what was it that got you to get going? I'm waking up very early in the morning, actually, right. um, with, with two very small children getting some peace and quiet was a rarity so a lot of this book was written between the hours of 5 and 7am uh, when no one else was awake uh, watching the, the sunrise it was very tranquil actually and I enjoyed writing about rather unpleasant uh, conflicts in the Middle East when there was a degree of relative peace in my own house We'll come back to your book a little bit later on in the programme but look let's talk about the, the papers today and, and how the world is covering what the events um, we must begin with the fact that today well this time Two years ago, on September, February the 24th, 2022, there were about 160,000 Russian soldiers on their way into Ukraine. And that Ukrainians woke up to sirens, evacuation orders, having to flee their homes, men up to the age of 50 suddenly realising that they had to abandon their previous identities and become soldiers. Um, how is that being marked today? What have you spotted? Because there's different ways of covering this, isn't there? That's right. So there were three different papers with fairly elaborate pieces on the war um, and its anniversary. And, and the New York Times takes a very, very critical look at Russia. Um, the Times of London takes a very critical look from the perspective of the Ukrainian military. And then The Guardian and Sean Walker, who's one of their lead writers from that region, um, Sean Walker gets on a train and travels across Ukraine and provides us with a series of vignettes. Um, you know, I think that the, the Times' piece um, looks at how Russia has changed and how Putin has changed um, since the war began. And they say that the country has been completely remade. And I think if there's any way to sort of summarize their findings, what the Times tells us is that things that you can buy and the things that you can pay for in Russia are all fine. Um, the economy is actually growing. Uh, people are making more money. Um, I'm told by friends that restaurants are booked out and shops are full and that life goes on. Um, but what the Times also says is the things that you can't buy with money are in deep trouble. And that includes things like freedom of speech and freedom of movement um, and political freedom and free elections uh, and, you know, the ability to sort of speak out against the war. Um, in that sort of area, uh, Russia has become much worse and, th and things have declined. Um, so a sort of different kind of calculus there about what's going on on the ground. And there was a sense, it's an excellent article insofar as it actually colour codes the red and the greens, doesn't it? It says, you know, benefits for Russia and then... 
the, the you know the, the 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 desperately difficult downside to what's happened insofar as crackdowns and denunciations, freedom of assembly has been obliterated. Independent journalism has has gone. Um, I found that interesting, um, Chris. The fact that the New York Times decided to focus on Russia because for so many, everybody wants to really focus on how Ukraine is doing, and the fact that. It appears now that time is not on Ukraine's side. Yes, and of course, Zelensky said that in Munich um, recently, uh, stating that, you know, there is a very strong emphasis uh, from Ukraine that we we still need the, the support that uh, we've been saying all along from the international community, from the West, and a, a very strong consciousness that uh, especially lawmakers in the US, but also some in, in Europe, are beginning to waver a little bit and question whether or not this is a winnable war for Ukraine. Obviously, the uh, um, the relative failure of the summer 2023 offensive uh, has, in some people's mind, dispelled the idea that Ukraine can win this war quickly. And now it's a question of, you know, can Ukraine persuade its Western allies that they need to stick with it in the long haul? And now the question even seems to be emerging, what does victory look like? Um, which this time two years ago, everybody would suggest it would be Russia to be completely out of, of Ukraine. That's right. That's one of the topics that the Times of London piece explores. And and the answer is that nobody's quite sure. Um, Ukraine isn't entirely sure what victory looks like, and neither is Russia. Um, there are any number of sort of stopping points along the road to victory that might be considered um, a time to stop. And one of those, if, if you're Ukraine... Um, for them, complete victory is the return to the 1991 borders and the return of Crimea and the return of, of eastern Ukraine and the complete withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. Um, you know, there is an emerging school of thought that says, look, Ukraine should just jettison the east. Um, this is a region that they will never fully be able to control um, and that will always have a large Russian ethnic population, most of whom have now been given Russian passports and are now citizens of the Russian Federation. And, um, you know, that just doesn't isn't going to gain any traction in um, in, in Kiev, in, in Ukraine. And then what is the Kremlin thinking? Um, is victory for them firm control of the east? Is it the toppling of Zelensky? Is it the permanent and ongoing destabilization of Ukraine and sort of rendering it a weakened geopolitical actor? It's, it's all still unresolved. And when we see the fall of Avdivka last week as almost seen as a symbolic loss for Ukraine, which in, in actual fact, I mean, this is a this is a town that has been part. It's, it's been on the front line since 2014, hasn't it? When 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 Putin sent in the troops, uh, well, annexed Crimea, and Avdivka has been just ground down to absolutely nothing nowadays. But the fact that it becomes that media focal point, as it sort of becomes a lightning rod for where we are nowadays with with Ukraine, it is absolutely. But it also echoes what we've seen in multiple urban fighting environments across the globe in recent years. You know, Avdika looks very much like Mariupol. It looks very much like Gaza today. It looks very much like Aleppo did a few years ago. Uh, this, uh, the, this imagery of a battered urban environment is now sadly the norm. And there are some bigger questions, particularly for Western policymakers, about whether or not this is something that they're just willing to stomach in the medium to long term. And certainly with the, the conversations that's ha that are happening in the hill, on the hill in the US about the Ukraine, 
it does sound like there's a sizable number of people that are just willing to accept that now. And that's problematic for people like Zelensky and those that want to push Putin back. And I mean, we'll come to you. This, uh, that echoes a bit in your book, actually, that when uh, you, one of the areas of conflict that you, you focus on, you begin with, is Syria. And you talk about a group of teenage boys in the southern town of Dera gra- graffitiing, uh, your turn next, doctor, this is at the point of the Arab, you know, the, right in the teeth of the Arab Spring. There was a thought that Syria and the Assad regime may topple. But in actual fact, what they did is they carted the boys away and they tortured them. But I went and looked up Dera after I'd saw that because I thought, I, I wonder what is happening now. And when you look at pictures of that town, it's rubble. There's nothing left. Yes, that's that's the the scene of large parts of Syria. I used to live in Syria for two years, so I'm I'm very familiar with it. I, I lived in Aleppo, which the half half of the city has now been destroyed and not been rebuilt because even though the Assad regime did reconquer rebellious regions such as Dera, uh, it was very much a, a pyrrhic victory. They they raised the Syrian flag back over the former rebel areas, but didn't have the money or resources or populations to rebuild. And that story, as I say, is not unique unique to Syria. Large parts of Libya look like that. Large parts of Yemen look like that. Uh, large parts of uh, of Gaza now look like that. And moving further afield, large parts of Ukraine now look like that. And this is what's being brought up in the, one of the articles in The Guardian that you, you mentioned, Charles, of, of this, this journey taken to assess how Ukraine is doing. That's right. There's this this is a very moving sort of emotional and, and atmospheric piece written by Sean Walker, who, who takes a, um, you know, hundreds, 900 miles of track from the front line um, all the way back to the western border of Ukraine, and, and and it's full of vignettes and anecdotes. And there's one particular interview that he does with a soldier who's on his way back home from the front, and he's going home to visit his wife. But what he does is he doesn't tell her that he's on the way home. And so he shows up completely by surprise. And, of course, it's you know a major shock to see your soldier husband at the front door when you weren't expecting him, particularly, as Sean describes, when your wife shows up at the front door in her dressing gown completely unprepared. Um, but the the moving part is when the soldier says that I do this because it's those memories, it's the memories of those moments at the front door that I take back with me to the front and that sustain me. And, you know, that's you're reaching for the Kleenex before you get to the end of that sentence. Absolutely. And and that's when you described that, it reminded me of the way that the story of Alexei Navalny has been played out in the press this week, that it very much becomes the love story between Alexei Navalny and his wife, Yulia. I mean, when you when you look at the, the, the documentary, it is very much how they fight this as a pair. He is clearly the charismatic leader, but she never left his side, did she? No, and it's very much the the human side that we're seeing in that relationship, which I think helps a lot of uh, members of the public in the West to empathise with the situation, and you know it builds their their story even more and emphasises even more just how heartbreaking uh, the events of, of recent weeks with regard to them have been. Um, let's move on to a story that's uh, that caught your eye, Chris, which is the with Shamima Begum who. He was the name of, a, of, a, of an East London former teenager, now grown woman, who left and became an absolute one. She was one of three girls who went over to Syria to join ISIS. And it, it, the world followed her, her path on CCTV as she, you know, she got on the tube and then she tra- they travelled to Turkey and then they disappeared. Um, she has now become a, a symbol of a much bigger problem as to what to do with all the people who are no longer part of ISIS, who have been captured. She applied to uh, retain her British citizenship and has had it stripped from her. 
regardless of that, she suddenly becomes this great example of a much bigger problem, doesn't she? Yes, she does. So what she's in the headlines at the moment is she launched an appeal to have her British citizen, which ha- citizenship, which had been stripped, restored. She lost that appeal uh, recently. Uh, but I agree that there she represents part of a bigger problem. She currently lives in a, a refugee camp of displaced people in northeastern Syria, which has about 3,000 people in it. And all of them are... Um, former inhabitants of what was known as the the so-called caliphate of the Islamic State. Uh, And most of those families are believed to have had sympathy, like Shamima Begum, with the the Islamic State. Um, But these people aren't going anywhere. They are effectively locked away in uh, unofficial internment, not allowed to leave. Many of them are foreigners who, like Shemaima Begum, have had their uh, citizenship stripped, whether they're from France, whether they're from European states, whether they're from elsewhere in the Middle East. Uh, and people don't really know what to do with them. There is a related problem, which is that the Islamic State has not gone away. They still operate as a terrorist cell in eastern Syria. That In 2022, they launched a, a quite violent prison break uh, and were able to free about 400 fighters that had been captured. Uh, and they're still able to launch terrorist attacks on both Syrian and Iraqi positions uh, and sometimes U.S. positions in eastern Syria. Certainly, I'm concerned when I read that article about the fate of Shamima Begum is that whilst we're understandably focusing on other conflicts such as Gaza and such as the Ukraine, the one that we were deeply involved in several years ago hasn't been resolved and it could explode again at any moment. And it's that question of international responsibility, isn't it? It's comparatively straightforward to launch a missile. Um, it's much harder to mop up afterwards, isn't it? it it's the follow-up that matters. And, and I think in all of these conflicts, particularly as we find ourselves in a global election cycle and particularly an election cycle in the United States, um, you know, the dominant theme in the resolution of any of these geopolitical conflicts is whether the United States is going to continue to be the global sheriff. Um, and if a Biden administration wins uh, in in November, then you get a much more globally oriented administration. Um, if the Trump if, if the Trump candidacy proves to be successful, then you will have a United States that will retreat within its borders. And we're seeing what that sounds and feels like now from Republicans in the House. And it means that there are a lot more messes out there that no one is either willing or has the capacity, the capacity or the intent to clean up. Chris, let's talk about your book, um, Battleground, 10 Conflicts That Explain the New Middle East. Um, it is just that, isn't it? It's I, I'm, I'm reading it at the moment and thinking, my goodness, I'm going to find this useful in my prep for Monocle Radio. Because if I suddenly realise I've got to do something on, I don't know, Yemen, and for, for a moment the large background escapes me, your book is there. Thank you. Well, I hope you do find it helpful. And, and, and that's <laughs> I'll let you know in about a year. So, well, our listeners will let us know. Uh, that's absolutely how it's designed. Uh, I was really conscious um, when writing this book that there doesn't really exist at the moment uh, a relatively easy, concise explanation of the geopolitics of the Middle East. Um, I was very, very inspired actually by um, Tim Marshall's Prisons of Geography, where he tries to explain wider geopolitics through this idea of 10 maps. And I thought actually one can apply the same principle to the geopolitics of the Middle East specifically. And I thought the best way of doing that would be to look at uh, 10 different conflicts. Conflicts might be violent conflicts such as Syria, Libya, Yemen that I've discussed, or political conflicts uh, such as has occurred in Egypt, Lebanon, the Gulf, Kurdistan, 
uh, and um, and Iraq today. And the idea was that you could take um, what's a relatively complex issue, <laughs> which is the international relations of the Middle East, and be able to distill it in a chapter or two that you can really sort of, you know, get a good understanding, a good overview of what's taking place. There's some history in there. There's some contemporary politics. And there's this sort of overall theme, as you can tell from the title, Battleground, that... This, these are arenas in which rival states, whether from the Middle East or from outside, are competing to pursue their interests. And that might be supporting one side against another in a civil war. It might be about sending money to one political faction in uh, a, a relatively weak and disputed political system. But there is that thread of commonality through all of these conflicts. And I would say throughout the international relations of the Middle East in general, that you have lots of external players wading in to try to influence the situation one way or the other. And this is this is what your your book suggests has changed in the last few years that that actually you do have international players meddling not just from external uh, governments from outside the region but from from within the region. I mean we've seen this enormously in the last few weeks uh, in Yemen when you have Iran-backed Houthi rebels targeting uh, western ships because of what's happening in Gaza and you suddenly have to get the map out. Um do you find though that it's it's too easy for people to to sort of slip into general tropes and narratives about the way that, the, that this region's story is told? Given the fact that you can say, well, it's religious this, or it's it's U.S. that, or it's such and such influence of that, are we too? It's difficult covering it, especially on the radio or on the television, where you have a matter of moments to get to to allow the person who's doing getting on with the rest of their lives to sort of explain to them why. It's it's important. Um, how how do you try and unpack it apart from reading a book? Obviously, sure, well, read my book. Um, but but of course, it, it it that is the challenge. And um, many in many ways, I'm reacting against that tendency for uh, commentators, for politicians, for members of the public to reach for the easy off to the she- off the shelf explanation for conflict in the Middle East. Religion is a popular one, whether it's divide divisions between Shia and Sunni Muslims or between Jews and Muslims in Palestine, things like that. Another popular explanation is oil. Uh, another explanation is the legacy of colonialism or m- more recently the neo-imperialist role of the United States. And of course, all of those factors are at play. But my book makes the point that we should avoid simplifying things and reducing things to those simple off-the-shelf explanations. I don't think we should be afraid of complexity and we shouldn't be afraid to say this is complicated, uh, but just because it is complicated doesn't mean we shouldn't want to find out more about it and learn more and understand better. And my belief is that through work such as my own, if you enhance your understanding, you can make better policy based on better understanding. How many people do you think you've offended writing this book? (laughs) I think one or two, but not as not as many not as many as I feared. I, I I've tested it with a lot of audiences and a lot of people from uh, the region, from the countries I'm writing about, and most people have said I've been very judicious and I try very hard to be even-handed and balanced in my approach because, as we know, it's a highly uh, emotive region, a region that attracts a lot of passions from various sides, and as much as possible, I try in the book to cut through that and present something that is. Uh, judicious and balanced. And Charles, as you write your book on Russian business, are you worried that you might get a knock on the door one day? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, 
I've yes, the, the book is comprised primarily of, of of more than seventy interviews with with business people and with government officials and with um, historians and, and and commentators and and talking about their experience as international investors in Russia and. They've all been extremely generous with their comments, and they've all, all been extremely candid. And if the book causes offense, which I don't think it will, because I think that most of the people who've been participating in interviews with me for the book have been, well, they've done it you know, with great pleasure and with great ease, and it's been a bit of a nostalgia trip. Um, let's return briefly to uh, the anniversary of the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, we're, we're keen for you, this, this clip has just come in, actually, and we'd quite like you to hear it. And it's about a, a Ukrainian writer um, and how you actually catalogue conflict and experience and resolve. Uh, and we're keen to get your reaction to this. Um, here on Monocle this week, we've been gathering um, tales, reflections, you know, reports from people right across um, Ukraine to find out how they have been experiencing the last two years. Let's hear from the writer and philosopher Volodymyr Yamalenko. Um, two years since the conflict began. Let's let's hear what motivates him. Well, the Ukrainian struggle is the struggle of the ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And this is something really, really, really strong. So people who would otherwise not be known would otherwise be just silent citizens. They're doing extraordinary things. And uh, this makes us rethink the whole attitude to life, the whole attitude to human society. So there is this sentiment of agency, individual agency, when people really believe that they can change something by their effort, by their collective effort, by their resistance. So this is one thing. A second thing is that there is a very strong feeling of life despite these tragedies and shellings and emptiness, if we talk about the cities on the front line. But people, despite all that, despite the fact that they are living under constant bombardments in Kherson or in Kharkiv or in, in Nikopol, they continue to struggle, they continue to live, they continue to feel joy of, of the lives, they continue to smile, they continue to think about the future. And this thinking about the future is uh, really remarkable. So in a way, this is a story of life which asserts itself in a situation when you would think that life is impossible and these little joys, human joys are impossible. But they are possible and they are, the life is fighting against death, against emptiness, against destruction. It, it finds its way even despite this war. That's Ukrainian writer and philosopher Volodymyr Yermolenko there. Chris, uh, having just written a book about 10 conflicts, when you hear, uh, you know, this, this calm voice talking about the assertion of life, it's, it's quite hard to fathom, isn't it? Well, it's quite inspiring, actually, when you listen to someone in, in that situation that is able to you know, maintain their morale. I think that's actually a, a sign of what the Ukrainian government have been able to do so successfully is manage to keep that morale going despite everything that the Ukrainian people have had to suffer in the last two years. Unfortunately, that in the conflicts that I, I focus on, uh, that has been absent in a lot, of the, a lot of the cases. And I think it's something that should really be... Uh, you know, admired about Zelensky and his team that they've managed to, to maintain that uh, optimism on the home front. Chris Phillips and Chuck Hecker, thank you so much for joining us uh, for that. We'll be back in a moment where we'll be moving to culture. 
Hello. For a celebration of all things print, tune in to The Stack. Featuring expert analysis, the view of magazine veterans and a look at what's flying off newsstands around the world. This is very unique to be able to buy a magazine and to find that many doors which you can open and that lead you into very different worlds. Listen to The Stack and hear Fernando Augusto Pacheco in conversation with our favorite editors. The Stack airs every Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Make it part of your must-listen lineup, live or on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. here in London. We've got just a few minutes left to squeeze in uh, art with the communications specialist, writer and documentary filmmaker Isabella Orlando, who's joined us all in the studio. Hello, Isabella. Good morning. And it's not just art, is it? It's everything that you want to talk to us about. Uh, What's on your creative shopping list? Oh, maybe let's start with Unravel, which I just saw at the Barbican yesterday. And it was the most fantastic, kind of unassuming show I've seen in a really long time. It was all based around textile art and there are 50 international artists that are contributing work from truly every, what feels like every corner of the globe. But it's so much more of a statement than I was expecting. It's really about power and resistance. Because on power, it's a, on, on paper, it says the power and politics of textiles. Um, 50 international artists challenge power structures and reimagine the world in this major group exhibition. Uh, there's quite a leap to make, isn't there, between textiles and, and, and what this exhibition is supposed to be about. How does it do, do it in an engaging way? Yeah, it's, I think... First of all, to understand that you have to take a few steps back and think about how we think about textiles. Like for me, I think about textiles as a craft more than an art form, which is part of the thing that this exhibition is responding to and trying to subvert, is that there's actually a real kind of fine art nature to textile making. But also historically, I mean, it's thought of as a woman's craft. It's very much kind of marginalized, not really taken seriously. But it can be a medium for exploring really contentious issues like borderlands, like transgressions of the body, thinking of, you know, think of making maps, think of the migration of people forced and otherwise across the globe, you know, using quilts to help shape the journeys of people on the Underground Railroad, like it's connected to all of these issues throughout history. Yes, and yeah, You're hitting the nail on the head, actually, because when you sort of think about, you know, what your area of expertise, Syria, um, Chris, and your area of expertise, Russia, you get the, the, the cultural identity of a place is, is often so firmly expressed through its textiles, probably in a way that uh, very, you know, certainly here in the United Kingdom and in, in various parts of Europe, that doesn't quite run as, run as strongly. What would you say to that? Chris, what would you say? I mean, because in Syria, if you've lived in Syria, there will be a very, very strong, almost geographical identity through 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 material. Absolutely. Um, being being on the Silk Route, this is something that the Silk Road, rather, this is something that 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 part of the world, Syria, uh, the Levant, have long attached a great deal of importance to their identity to. If we spend any time in, in Damascus, as I know that, that you have, we, you can see in the the, the central souks the presence of uh, that legacy and how that feeds into a sense of Syrian, Arab, Islamic cultural identity. When you can also see in Eastern Europe the the, the wearing of, of the embroidered shirts, those very beautiful sort of billowy 
um, male and female shirts that have elaborate embroidery patterns on them known as wishivanka. Um, that is a sign of ethnicity. It's a sign of nationalism. And it's very much a sign these days of rebellion. Indeed. And when you sort of go to various areas, you know, even if you go to Germany and Austria, you will have your local identity will be determined by the clothing you wear. It's, it's hyper-local, isn't it? What I mean, what do you, is that expressed at all in the Barbican exhibition? Absolutely. So it's organized thematically. So you have a section on... Um, you have a section on clothing and kind of repurposed clothing, which touches on a lot of those kind of ethnic ethnic issues, but also personal, like the intimacy of the fact that we wear clothing close to our bodies. And so then it gets into issues like transgressions of the body and sexual violence. And it really explores a big range of topics that you would never think that textile could be used to kind of get at. But I think there's also healing is a big a big theme as well. And I think it brings me to what Chris mentioned in there's a I think there was a program run by the Royal Academy or the British Academy a few years ago where by refugees were using felting and local crafts to kind of recall and I guess just process some of the experiences that they had had. And it was through the craft process, specifically with textiles of physically mending and putting things together that I think helps people to integrate. I just think that kind of creative healing process is really interesting to think about from the artist perspective. Okay, where do you want to take us next in the world of culture? We've all got our textiles sorted. We're all going down to the Barbican. Let's um, stay in, in London maybe and okay. talk Dorian Gray. Yes, now t- tell us about Dorian Gray. What, what is it? And, and now these two gentlemen in the studio have just sat up and like, you know, ears pricked, ready to <laughs> listen to what you should be telling us about. Well, it's a one-woman take on Oscar Wilde's novel, which I think is really interesting. And it's starring Sarah Snook, who's the lead, one of the lead actors in Succession. So star-studded, one-woman show um, with technology playing another big role. So the story of Dorian Gray, you know, a young, handsome gentleman who has his portrait painted. And as his sort of moral character decays, so too does the image of himself in the painting. A little bit supernatural, a little bit a little bit weird and wild, um, is kind of being shown through technology. And so these screens are enlarging the actor's face, morphing the actor's face, distorting it, making it look kind of gruesome as the play goes on. Um, Now, does that work, given the fact that the whole point of Dorian Gray is what you don't see? It's the imagination. Maybe, but I think it's I think it's a nice update to the theme of vanity and narcissism and kind of moral character being shrouded in in this, you know, pretty veneer being that being degraded is kind of I think what the cameras are there to show in this in this case. Gentlemen, you're too su- you're super excited about saying this, aren't you? <laughs> Is is it is anyone ever going to get a ticket to this? Is I guess the part because if I can, I will. Sarah Snook is an absolute powerhouse. I mean, I don't. This is one thing that I am totally out of touch with. But I don't normally go to the theater, and I don't know how much tickets cost. But these ones are not cheap. Yeah, well, as long as they're available, I think I'll, it's time to queue up. Okay, we're now sort of having a little group. We're hiring a minibus, aren't we? <laughs> I'm going. Yeah, you ready to go and see it, Chris? Um, let's move to. Uh, Barley. You wanted to talk to us about barley this 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 week. It has a new year, um, and and you wanted to talk about how uh, local traditions are are sort of being under the, put under the spotlight, Isabella. Yeah. So March eleventh is Niepi, which is the kind of Hindu Buddhist, very local Balinese um, New Year, where the whole island will basically go silent for a day. So no transport, no lights, 
the idea is that the evil spirits visiting will see that there's kind of nothing going on, nothing to see here, um, which I just think is such a lovely way to start a new year in just total, utter silence. Um, but it's interesting that this has continued because this is a sort of hybrid religion that's existed since the first century. And we know Bali, I know Bali in my my mind as a, a tourist hotspot, a place to escape, a place for yoga, a place to be on the beach. And yet these really hyper-local traditions have survived in spite of that. And that's really remarkable because often when we have a huge wave of tourism, we see culture degrade and we see globalization put culture at risk. And it's very much, I mean, having been in Bali last last year as part of the World Tourism Organization, it was one of those incredible things that the spotlight was so firmly and in such an organized way. You know, you visit Bali, it's it's impossible, almost impossible, one feels to get off the beaten track in Bali because, for starters, it's not very big. So you can, you know, you can drive across it in, in a matter of a couple of hours or so. Um, and when you do go to, there is, you know, nowhere is unexplored here, is there? But that's a really lovely thing to say, see that actually each village isn't part of a tourist trail and each fish you know, you know, each fishing location isn't, you know, open to tour buses and traditional dances you know all day every day which is it felt a little bit like that to me when I when I was there and it's quite nice to hear that actually there's there's a real beating heart behind it yeah absolutely and I think that's the the danger sometimes with mass tourism is that it very quickly a location becomes Disney World and that's what we want to try to avoid as travelers I think if we can I know it's difficult like you said sometimes to know what getting off the beating track means in a place but that's where research comes in. That's where curiosity comes in. And more than anything, I think that's where openness comes in. Because I think when you go to a place with expectations of the kinds of standards of what you expect, that's when we, our choices start to detract from local culture. And then instead, we're getting our coffee from a Starbucks instead of having a local cup of tea. So I think being mindful about how we can, if we like culture and we're interested in culture, how we can be supportive of culture by the very, like, quotidian choices that we make when we're traveling. Um, I just think that's an important point to highlight. For two people, one of whom's lived in Moscow and the other one who's lived in Damascus, I mean, how long do you need to be in a place before you can go off the beaten track? Because, my, you know, my experience of Bali was not long and a lot of it was on a bus. Um, and, but, you know, when, you know as, the, as the bus stopped, you just thought, I'd quite like to get off and have a look, <laughs> please. What, do you, what was it like for you, uh, Chris? Well, I think... It, it, there's always uh, degrees, aren't there? Uh, it's a, on, on the one hand, one can, depending on the country one's in, you can go off the beaten tra- track immediately, provided you find people that are willing to take you and that you feel comfortable in that situation. On the other hand, you know, you, there are people that live in states for decades and, and never go beyond the the the, star, the local Starbucks and, ne- and never sip a, a local cup of coffee. So it's often down to the individual. But of course, you always have to be careful that you know, as an outsider living in someone's country, you are the outsider, and even if you sort of learn the language fluent. And, and feel like you know the culture quite well, you, you will always have that, that degree of separation. And you're always, you know, uh, dependent on friendly hosts that are willing to offer you the opportunity to integrate you as best as you can. There's a room for silent when you walk into a room. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I first moved to Moscow to live there permanently in 1994, it was really sort of the days of, the, of what was called the Wild East. And um, you had to immerse yourself in the local environment because you had to actually sort of look for groceries. You had to look for, you know, staples and, 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 and you had to look for things that you needed to kit out your apartment. Um, it wasn't like you could order everything online and have it delivered the next day or go to massive mega supermarkets and buy everything that you needed in one big shop. Um, you needed a certain amount of linguistic bravery. 
uh, you needed a very good winter coat. And but you were really you could not isolate yourself. You absolutely had to immerse yourself in your surroundings. Otherwise, you would starve. My thanks to Charles Hecker, Chris Phillips, Isabella Orlando and uh, to you for listening. Thank you for uh, joining us on Monocle on Saturday. Our producer was Tom Webb. Our studio engineer was Mariella Bevan. Uh, Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. But for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.